You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 262 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. There are a few episodes out of all the ones I've done so far that stick out to me. Let's call them favorites, either because of the topic or because of how they turned out or because of the guest. Now this episode you're about to listen to now has for me ended up in my personal pantheon of favorite episodes and the reason is all of the above. Uh, My guest is documentarian, indigenous rights advocate, author and explorer Bruce Perry. And if you're listening to this episode as it is coming out on the 17th of March 2020, you can join me in singing happy birthday to Bruce Perry because it is his birthday today. So sit back, relax and enjoy our conversation about indigenous cultures, anarchism, healing, travel and many other things. And Bruce Perry's latest film is Tawai, A Voice from the Forest. And it's out now and you can stream it on tawai.earth. That's T-A-W-A-I dot earth. What is our relationship with the natural world? And how has this changed over time? I went on a journey to discover what we might have lost and how to find it once again. His senses, he's like electric, walking around, looking at, listening to everything that's going on. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Alex. Nice to meet you. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? <laughs> cool. Of course. Yeah. So my name's Bruce Parry. I'm a I'm a what am I? I uh I'm a filmmaker, I guess, a, a bit of an explorer. Um and yeah, I I used to make documentaries for the BBC for many years, uh especially traveling the world living with indigenous peoples. I did uh, a whole bunch of programs living with tribal peoples in different parts of the world and and then also programs about the environment, uh and um, globalization, climate change. And then I quit the BBC and I started and I made a film, feature film for cinema, which was a, a deeper look at these same subjects, more of a spiritual journey, I guess. And now I'm trying to start a community, be a homesteader living in Wales, um, trying to bring into practice the things that I've learned. I'm still going to do a bit more television stuff, but um, ultimately I'm um, so I'm a filmmaker and wannabe, wannabe homesteader, I guess. That's what I'm at. <laughs> it's ironic that uh, in the modern 
society, only the rich can live like the poor lived like a thousand years ago. Isn't it true? Yeah, it's very weird to have the ability to have land. I'm very aware that that's a privilege. And also the 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 time because it takes time to grow your own food and that and uh, we don't have the time. Everyone else is on a gerbil wheel running around, um, just getting from one place to the next. Yeah, it's very true. Um, and we're caught up in all our addictive patterns as a result. Um, yeah, I think that um, there's all sorts of reasons why that might have happened, but uh, I think that lots of people are waking up to that now and the re- a return to, to the countryside in one shape or another is, is, is going to happen more, I believe. Um, but, uh, yeah, as you say, it's a privilege at this present moment for, for the few who can afford that. Um, uh, to, at least to own land. I mean, like where I'm at in Wales, for example, there's lots of people who have very little money who are who have moved back to the land and are engaged with land work, but they're not in a space of ownership, and so they're in some ways or other um, having to pay rent, you know. Um, and uh, so the um, so you know that's that's a complication. For um, for them. Sorry, the postman just came. That's why I lost my trail of thought. <laughs> uh, um, and, but I've got friends here who are who are incredibly um, inspiring and exemplary in their life, living in yurts in people's fields and living a very low income existence, and still trying to be with the land and trying to learn skills and trying to um, be as little impact on the the environment as possible. And so it is possible without. Um, without the privilege of owning, but it is, of course, you're still at the auspices of the people who are the landlords, you know, and that 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 has its own difficulties. So how did you become interested in indigenous cultures? Yeah, um, well, I would, I guess my first interest was in travel. You know, I, I didn't start out with a fascination of tribal people or indigenous cultures. It was more... Um, I was just an adventurer, you know, I'm sort of almost ashamed to say it back then. I was one of those want to climb the mountain to prove myself to myself that I could go to places that people hadn't gone to. And it was a bit of an ego trip. Um, but then the more that I did travel and the more that I went to remote places and I, I started meeting extraordinary people, then, of course, your interest arises. And then you realize that the, these people live extraordinarily um interesting and different lives and that that sort of shifted over time um so i guess the answer is i came in became interested by spending time with them you know um, but the reason i spent time with them was because i was already traveling in those places in your travels meeting different indigenous communities have you seen any things that are similar even though they might be on the other side of the planet but similar in the way they live their lives Yeah, I mean, I think 90% of the way that other people live their lives are the same. Um, I think that we are all trying to eke out um, a lifestyle, you know, as homo sapiens, as humans. I mean, there's much more that unites us than it is that divides us. You know, we, we are very, very similar people all over the world. There's a lot of flamboyant differences that catch the eye, that make you think we're different. There's a lot of cultural differences, but um, but still, the 90% of everything that's going on is is identical. You know, we all love our children, we all want harmony deep down, and we're all trying to get through. Um, 
and there are power struggles and there are ups and downs in the sort of modern societies but um but by and large we're all pretty much the same i was thinking like for an example i've have, don't have as much experience as you but i've spent time with the Shipibo in Peru and the Quechua in Ecuador and also in I also been to Gabon and uh, one thing one similarity amongst those different cultures was this thing where you could sit several people in in the same space and it could be quiet but there was never an uncomfortable silence yeah I think that for sure many cultures who are living closer to the land and cultures that have um, community very much at their heart, um, they're, they're more comfortable in each other's presence, you know. There's, they have less of the cult of individualism that we have. Um, and of course, in our society, we're, um, we often find it quite difficult to be still. I think a lot of that, I mean, there's many reasons for that, but one of them may be just because we don't have the same tools for exercising the traumas that we pick up. And then we, because we live these individual lives, we, we don't have to deal with people in the same way. And so we just keep ourselves moving. Um, and it's actually quite hard to sit still. Whereas you find in these communities often, they have many, with a different way that they bring each other up, the different tools that they have for exercising traumas and all the rest of it. It's much, it's much more, um, you, you can see it's much, uh, much more um, prevalent that, the, that they can just be still and be at ease with each other in silence and feel the more subtle um, forces around. Uh, uh, and I think that is a lot to do with them being um, more harmonious inside themselves as well. It was funny in Gabon, I talked to this young person that belonged to the Fang and he said that he wished he could have all the things I had and I told him well I, I, I want to have all the things you have <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's very common and I've seen it everywhere that people romantically project into other people's lives as to what, what they want you know and we're, we're sort of romantically looking back at these so called pristine harmonious communities and they're similarly thinking that we live this this life of unlimited choice and limited luxury unlimited um freedom uh and the truth is that neither of those projections are correct um that that there there is a lot of romance projected in both directions but what's interesting though when you do look at people who have had a true experience of both lives um and you see this from you know president franklin spoke about it in his letters to his friends it's like he was saying it's funny how so many of our um so many of our our natives our people have gone native and joined the um the the peoples of north america but but none of them will come to us and even those that we bring and we and give them all the luxuries and everything as soon as they get the first opportunity to run home they do and I've noticed that in many of my experiences of traveling the world is that people who have a true understanding of both um, will always go back to, um, in time, not at first, but nearly always go back to their old ways if, if, um, if, they, if, if, if it's not too late. Um, quite often it's too late and the generation's gone and, and there's no going back. But if there's been a slow enough transition and the young people who always want to go out and, and have this new exciting understanding of this outside world, 
but it doesn't take them long to realize that what they had before was actually really amazing and they can take a few things from our world but by and large they will always go back to the way it was before i find that very telling um, in my experience have you had any experience uh, meeting the indigenous in australia i haven't actually no not uh, i haven't spent time in australia i mean i've been there uh, and i've met aboriginal peoples but i haven't uh, i haven't really got to know them mm, i was wondering because I, i was curious about them um but i know you didn't you go to was it indonesia or malaysia or yeah i've been i've been many places i've been yeah absolutely i spent i spent many years in indonesia i spent a lot of time months many months in malaysia um yeah i know those areas quite well there's a group in in uh, indonesia in sorry malaysia that uh, i i i've become especially um interested in and spent a lot of time with and, and befriending called the Penan. They were a group of people living in Borneo who who fascinated me. Because what, what was so special about them um, was, you know, I, I've lived like you have, you've visited a number of tribal groups and when you go and visit and you have these experiences, you like to project your sort of understanding of humanity into these places and you try and sort of conjure up your ideas about what what are the differences, what are the similarities, what what is it that's beneath all of these things uh, and trying to find out what our common nature is um, and our ways of organizing society and all this sort of stuff and of course I had the great privilege of doing that all over the world I mean I went to 20 odd different groups and spent month a month or so living with them and really got a good flavor of it and at the end of that time I realized there was so much we can learn from tribal people um, There's obviously they have their different ways of bringing up children. They have their different healing tools. They have their connection to nature. They have their connection to each other. They have all of these different things that we we can learn about. But by and large, I I also came to believe that um, at the base level, the way that we create and construct society is pretty similar, and we're all dealing with the same problems of hierarchy and power and and all the stresses that come from that. And then um, that was until the last group that I ever visited was a group in in Borneo called the Penan I just mentioned, and they uh, didn't have those stresses at all. They had a very different type of society, and it took me a long time to realize that actually all of the other groups that I'd visited, no matter how flamboyant and no matter how ancient they might seem, were all actually, in relative terms, modern societies just like ours. Uh, and when I met the Penan, I realized that that was my first ever true insight into how humans really evolved for like 90% of our time on the planet. Um, we were living more like them and what they're living like is uh, egalitarian. And so they're, they're much more pacifistic, much um, more um, peaceful and harmonious. And they don't deal with the struggles, uh, uh, stresses of hierarchy because they have none. They are completely equal um, and they have no ownership, no leaders, no shamans. This is a time before even tribes, even because there isn't even a difference between one group and another. They're all exhibiting the same traits throughout the whole space. And so this is an extraordinary insight that, that it took me going around the world to to finally find it you know having lived with all these tribes i finally found at the end of it oh my god this is what 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 i was really searching for 
And then in this instance, it is possible to be romantic because there is a completely different way of being when you meet those people. It is a different paradigm. I mean, they're existing almost with no competition. And that's a very, very different way of, of, of creating society and also and relating to each other to have a non-competitive way of being. And these people are also known to be the most peaceful people on the planet. You know, they're, they are the, the studies that have been done. I remember the, the anthropologist Jerome Lewis, who was with me when we went to meet another group called the Benjeli in Africa, and him saying these groups like the Panan, they're, they're the most peaceful people on the planet. And I remember saying to him, Jerome, we're making a film. You can't say that. It's like, he goes, no, Bruce, I'm like head of the anthropology department at UCL, London. And, you know, by the means by which we measure these things in all societies around the world, these, these egalitarian societies come out on top time and again as the most peaceful people on the planet especially the ones in southeast asia um, and of course they're they're anarchies they have no leaders and so that's you suddenly start getting a taste and an insight into how our society is so different so much so that we've even attributed the term anarchy to these people and and, and turned it into something that's all about chaos and violence when in actual fact it's quite the opposite that's interesting Usually the number one argument against anarchy that I face, because I, I like anarchy, is that, uh, you know, uh, people are going to start killing each other. But I always say that uh, it's not the law that stops me from killing somebody. So it's really irrelevant, you know. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we just have such a history uh, and our literature and our politics and everything backs it up. You know, our religions back it up as well, you know. And like we, a lot of the Western um, societies are based on the early ideas around original sin, you know, which is a Christian idea that left to our own devices will tear each other's hearts out. You know, and so many of our narratives and and stories come from the same place. Don't don't let humans free without strong central government. Otherwise, they'll just like pull each other apart. And of course, there are incidences of us of d committing terrible atrocities when left to our own devices. I think that just just going from this where we're at now to anarchy would, would be very complex. I think that the reason that the Panan are able to exist in such a way is because they're, they're not carrying the same degree of wounding and trauma that we are carrying in this type of society that we've grown up in. I think there would have to be a transition to go back to that. But knowing that it's possible and knowing that beneath our layers of conditioning is something really beautiful invites us to go on that healing journey. I think that's what's that's what's key for me. It's like knowing that 95% of our time on the planet we lived as as like peaceful anarchists and that actually we're not just going to tear each other out. If we can heal, it, it sort of inspires you to actually go on that inward journey um, rather than thinking there's no point in me looking at myself and taking responsibility or going in on in because beneath those layers is just terrible. So if we can disp dispel that myth and say, no, actually, it is worth going on that journey because we're, we're amazing beings deep down, then maybe there's hope that more and more people will turn to plant medicines, to meditation, to whatever it is, to start looking at themselves and taking responsibility. I think that would be a good step. So this, these Panan, how did they solve if there was a conflict or a decision that needed to be made? Did they have like a meeting everybody or 
Sure. Well, interestingly, you know, people like the Panan, they're, they're so of one mind anyway, because their whole belief system and their whole um, sort of value system is just based on creating a world for the for their children. You know, so they're, they're all buying into the same system anyway, and that arbitrates against nearly all of the conflicts that they have. Um, and so you find... I think that if I went and spoke to the Panan and asked them most questions about what they want to do, they're almost all in complete agreement the whole time. Um, of course, that doesn't mean to say it's utopian. There will be conflicts. There will be jealousies and, and upsets and what have you. But um, they're generally conflict-adverse types of people, so they would step away from conflict rather than step into it. That would be their normal methodology. They're pacifistic. Um, uh, but of course, that's that's possible for them because they have unlimited space, or at least used to have unlimited space to retreat into. Now it's harder. Now they're talking about fighting for the first time because they're just like in a tiny little enclave, and the rest of their world is is gone. You know, the only these egalitarian societies are very vulnerable to being um, to being persecuted by the more advanced, sort of technologically advanced and aggressive uh, agricultural societies that generally are surrounding them. And so they've traditionally either assimilated or retreated, but there's no more retreating now. So their backs are against the wall. Um, and so the, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't have aggression in their in their souls or, or in their in their psyches, but they um, but they tend to use it only as a last resort. Um, and then for decision making, yeah, and like I said, they they they're um, generally they they would be a consensus type decision making it would be everyone agreeing you know um, rather than consent i would say um and that but that doesn't seem so hard for them because there's their world is much less complex do you know anything about their belief system as far as spirituality or cosmology or that kind of thing yeah, well, of course, what i'm talking about is not just one group there are many many groups um and obviously when you i'm when you step away and just look at all indigenous peoples, there's a, there's a million different cosmologies, as many cosmologies as there are different indigenous groups. But when it comes to the groups that I'm really interested in now that I've just been talking about, these um, these uh, very few uh, remaining uh, egalitarian, what they call instant return egalitarian hunter-gatherers, there's only a few left in Africa and Southeast Asia, there's last remnants of these sort of pre-agricultural societies. Um, when they're still nomadic, they would nearly always be uh, animistic, um, except that, of course, like even the Panan who feature in the film I just made, you know, they've they were traditionally animistic, but now they're Christian. Um, and so it just depends where the where the the um, missionaries have got to. But by and large, it wouldn't have been long ago for most of them. Um, that they were animistic and so that would have meant and there'll be many different forms of animism but it would generally have meant something akin to uh, a living universe with life and spirit force in a positive and negative sort of charge in nearly everything that's out there um, and it's a relatively tolerant belief system you know, so you'll have animists, animists can absorb other religions relatively easily and just add them to their list of deities or list of spirits. They're not like a monotheistic groups, which are a little bit more um, rigid and stuck because it's one God and only one way. So animists are a little bit more fluid in that way, um, which is which is to their 
um, benefit in a way because it makes them more resilient to change. Um, but they, yeah, so they will have seen life force in nature and they will see themselves as part, fully part of nature, not above it and superior to it. And so they don't worship a god that is human in a human form. They will see themselves as just part of the, the living world. Um, and not and sort of not sort of hubristic or arrogant in that way of like separating themselves out and placing themselves above everything. They will just um, be respectful, and the sort of animistic view will often bring about a, a sense of respect for that which is around you, and um, a, an understanding of what to take and what not to take. These things may may well be wrapped up in their um, narratives and beliefs. And aren't they Christian just to be left alone to avoid being? burned at the stake so to, I mean I know uh, some other indigenous groups became converted to that but they still do what they used to do but they just changed the names of things it's hard for me to know that uh, I did try and investigate that a little bit um, in the film I just made and the, there was a time when the, you know so the Penan for example I mean I've lived with groups who are still animistic but um, for those who have adapted like the Penan to Christianity uh you know, the story they told me was that um, the missionaries came in and basically took all their magic instruments and, and implements and effigies and burnt them and then left them and then came back in two years and said, see, your world hasn't changed that much. Kind of try to upset anything that the, that the Christians saw as um, superstition and fear-based. Um, and, and so sort of came in with a dose of heavy reality that tried to knock out any sort of more magical thinking or knock out any sort of more intuitive thinking. Um, and of course, the other thing that, that often the missionaries very much have at their fingertips is that they have medicines. What they do is they bring in diseases that, that uh, many hunter-gatherer groups have never dealt with and had to deal with um, diseases that only come about when you settle and turn to agriculture. You know, it's only through the domestication of animals that the majority of our really bad, difficult diseases have come about in human history. So when those people then go and meet tribes living in the forest, of course, they're bringing a disease that they have no resistance to because it's just not a natural disease. It's only come about as a result of this very toxic communication with closeness to animals. Um, and so... Um, so the tribes very often nearly always die, but the but the but the visiting new religion will have at its fingertips also medicines, and the, and they are therefore that's a powerful tool to be able to also displace the uh, and show up the, the 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 magic of the shamans who were there previously, and so people just often, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but this is just another tool that will be used to. Um, to shift someone's awareness and so but i think i think a number of groups genuinely do change you know and others maybe will blend the two and as you say some will will probably keep the old and pretend to keep with the new it will just depend on the strength of the group and the particular experiences that they've had and you know there'll be different answers to that question everywhere really uh, the panan do they uh, use any mind-altering plant medicines no interestingly i um i think i don't think they do i don't think they do and i went to the other ones i visited as well i mean the the ben jelly in africa they had 
they had a particular route they would take when the the women would take when the men went out hunting elephant, and then the women would then know when the elephant was killed. It would feel it in their spine as a result of having taken this route. Um, and, it, it, and I think that had some subtle psychotropic aspect. But my belief of of this sort of area, you know, having been had had many extraordinary healing. Um, you know, healing opportunities and, and deep healings from taking plant medicines myself all around the world and the great privilege I've had of going on that journey um, and how I feel that it could be a benefit to so many today. Uh, I still, actually, when I look at a group like the Panan, I think that they, that they don't need it, you know. They are already, um, and the Ben Jelly and others, and I went to meet this group in, in, in uh, the Amazon as well in my film called The um, the Piraha, who have their own direct connection with the divine just by being incredibly present, you know, and, and I don't think groups like that really have a need for it. I think they're all, they're all already existing in a much more sort of right hemispheric, interconnected, empathic um, space that um, we, we only touch on when we go into you know, week-long Vipassanas or, uh, or take ayahuasca or what have you, and we sort of tickle the edges of something that I think that they're already abiding in, to be honest. So, yeah, I think that these things probably came about as a, as, as a way of us reconnecting to that which we already had. You know, I think that these groups are existing in a much more interconnected paradigm than we could imagine. Um, they don't really have much use for it. There's also the kind of um, plant medicine or even animals that they use, some some indigenous groups, that doesn't create a mind-altering effect, but it creates maybe a lot of pain or it makes you feel like you're dying. And uh, from that experience, you could be healed uh, because like if you're in a car accident and you survive that could be healing for that person in, uh, because they feel happy they made it through so uh, there are some uh, there are some like in in the amazon for instance they uh, they have rituals with like ants and uh, i think it's a frog and it just causes pain and and uh, also uh, in africa i think there's something where you uh, go through like you have a fever and you it feels like you're gonna die but then you survive yeah 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 no i've done a few of those and you know so whether it's um cambo or um god what's the one for the eyes i can never remember um i can't remember anyway uh yeah the, these sorts of um these sorts of rituals and medicines, different, not psychotropic medicines, but maybe different type of medicine. Yeah, I don't know exactly what's going on there. I think something like Cambo, for example, which is the frog poison you put into the bloodstream, or at least you, you break the, the skin and you, and, and you enter it into the bloodstream and also perhaps the, the um, neural pathways. Um, and it makes you feel very, very sick, like you're going to die. You could just say that that's just nothing more than it makes you feel shit. So when you clean up later, you feel amazing. But I, but I, I believe that there's probably something more than that going on. I think that there is a deep cleansing of some sort that it does enter some aspect of us um, uh, in in a neurological way, and maybe even in a sort of 
in a in a more subtle way beyond that too you know there's a, that's how they would describe it it's like you take on the essence of the frog or it it cleans you out and somehow and um, um, and so I think in a sort of spirit energy type way that there could well be an explanation there that we, we that we haven't yet figured out um, but it's very real um, so yeah there's a whole bunch of those and I've yeah I've had the ant stinging and stuff like that as well I mean the stuff that goes on in the Amazon there's a bit of bravado in that it's a less medicinal thing it's more of a male right thing sometimes but again you know there's so many and they all have different purposes and meanings all over the place don't you think in the Amazon that there could be amongst the uncontacted tribes uh, the same kind of like the Panan, like egalitarian, anarchistic society? I doubt it. In fact, I doubt it. Um, I think that those few groups that are still uncontacted are, you know, they're not contacted by us, but they're contacted by others, um, by by the other tribes around them. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of them are people who've run away from the rubber slavery and, and sort of adamant not to come back into our world. There's, um, I know, I know one group in in um, in Brazil who are, I I know them through their neighbouring group, and so I, I kind of know their, uh, I, I know about them. But the reason I say that I'm not, uh, I don't expect so, is because um, it's it's generally believed that egalitarianism never made it to um, the Americas in the same way that it still exists in Africa and Southeast Asia. Because if you if if you think that this is our oldest way, well, actually, we only reached the Americas in the last ten thousand years. You know, in the last ice age crossing over. I mean, according to modern theories, but that seems to be what everyone thinks. Um, and it, it so there will be extraordinarily wonderful nomadic hunter gatherer groups, but it's quite possible that they that they will have lost some of these deeper understandings of. Um, no ownership and no leadership because that in order to have left the tropics of Africa and Southeast Asia and gone on to that journey up through into the cold and across the Bering Straits and down they will have gone through a different journey um, and um, probably come into a space of hierarchy and, and leadership to go on that journey so it's it's considered that the, the these really old ways actually never made it to the Americas and uh, although obviously those wonderful people who live in the Americas have still got lots to teach us, and I think the fact that they went through the cold um, meant that they were able to re, when they came back back into more temperate climates, were able to reconnect with it in a really beautiful and different way, which is why we have some of the extraordinary teachings from the people of North America. Um, I still, still even so, it feels that there was still competition, mostly. Um, at play between those groups, which wouldn't have been the case, let's say, in the Congo, where it was there was no tribalism at all. It was just everyone existing in a certain way. So I think that the the depth of egalitarianism probably never made it to the Americas. Doesn't mean to say it can't come back, <laughs> but the sort of most people think it didn't really get there. If you, uh, I mean, you they're all very different. Every indigenous community, but. What are the things you think uh, or what you have taken from them into your own life to uh, make it something that you do? 
Mm. Yeah, well, not enough. I'm always working on it. I mean, I, I, I'd liked, basically, I, I, I have seen and understand the benefits of community life. And um, so that's what I'm trying to bring about now. I, I left, I was living in Spain for many years. I've come back to the UK to connect to land, to connect to place, to try and learn how to forage and to be in community, I, I think. And to, and I don't have kids yet, but if I do, to bring them up in community, I think is something vital that I've learned um, that, that offers such... Uh, an opportunity for the kids to not get as many traumas as they might do if if it was just me and a partner uh, in four walls and they're sort of absorbing all of my all of my stuff when I'm having a bad day was in a the community they can it can get spread out and the kids can go and play next door and you know and all that sort of stuff so I, I I I do believe in child rearing community as something that I would like to bring into to my life I haven't done it yet um and and obviously, sort of, I, I guess I've become a bit of an animist, you know. I definitely, um, and there's different ways of packaging that in more modern terminologies, um, sort of panpsychist or whatever. But or, but it, but it, it all comes down to seeing nature as alive and um, uh, and respecting it as such, uh, and that being something that you try and live your life through so that that then has a knock-on effect in how you consume how you relate to everything and everyone um and um yeah and on it goes i mean there's many things but they're, they're i guess they're the big ones and i live in a house and i also have a bit of land and uh, i've uh, noticed that one thing that's very spiritual healing is to uh I don't know what it's called in English. You know when you put rocks in a circle and you have a fire? Um, to make food on that uh, is way better than on the stove, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, I mean, just I've got a, I've, I've got friends who are living near me now uh, um, and we, 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 we try to get out every, once a week to just spend the whole day outside. Um, and live from what we catch or, or forage for, um, and like you know, we we are only just starting this, but we we've, we've made a pact. There's five of us, and we're gonna you know just um, go back to more primitive skills, if you want to call it that. You know, like our fire from rubbing sticks, and and you know, and just be outside for the day and see what we can, and just trying to reconnect in that way, and trying to sort of like get back into a space of seeing nature in through a different prism different lens and and understanding where everything comes from and our, our impact on it and all these things i think are really important uh yeah important aspects of life that we need to reconnect with if we're going to get through i've also as i've grown older and also due to my experiences in in uh, uh, nature and rainforest and with indigenous people i've come to love the seasons whereas i remember when i was younger i always wanted only summer i hated all the other seasons <laughs> but now i look forward to the seasons and i was a bit disappointed this year because we never got snow in winter i don't know if that's the climate or what but it's very it's really strange wow yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's just 
yeah, all of those things, you know, the more time we can spend outside, we realize where the moon phases are, we realize the, the change of the seasons. You know, I learned to forage a few years ago, or not learned full stop, but like started the journey of learning to forage because I wanted to come back to the UK and call that home. And it felt like that was a way of reconnecting to this place. And, and then it was just so beautiful because it really woke me up to, okay, all of these edible plants, but you see them in January and February and they're just tiny little things. And then as you watch them grow and come about, you get to sense, ah, this is the coming of those. And this is where the energy is in them. And then they flower and then it's on to the next thing. And then you go down to the sea and it's all about the seaweed. And then you come back and then it's all about the nuts and the berries and and so flowing with the seasons through edible food for me was an extraordinary journey of just really bringing me into closer connection to the landscape uh, in a way that, you know, I've always found it beautiful and watched the, you know, the leaves falling, but it was never much detail. But this really took me into another layer of detail. If anyone really wants to go on a nature connection journey, I think learning to forage is a, is a beautiful way of doing that. Um, How difficult is it if you know what, to find and eat how difficult is it to find enough to be satisfied difficult at this latitude if you want to be vegan or anything that's almost impossible you know it's like you get into the winter months it's very hard with foliage you'll have to start hunting i mean you the further north you get or the further to the poles you get of course the more meat dependent you are if you want to live in those places um then obviously you can become more um vegetarian or fruitarian as you go more towards the tropics which is probably where we're supposed to be <laughs> um, but hey we've we, we've eked out a place for ourselves everywhere so you mentioned you made uh, a film recently and also other films can you mention what their names are and where people can see them thank you alex yeah so the film that i left the bbc to make well the stuff i did in the bbc I, I i don't know if that's available online but you can get the dvds and stuff tribe it was called tribe um and I, amazon with bruce parry and arctic with bruce parry they're the big bbc ones and then then i left and made a film called to why a voice from the forest which is more like a a spiritual look at connection to nature and some of these things we've been talking about so tawai is spelled t-a-w-a-i t-a-w-a-i and the website is tawai.earth and then you can find it all there well i've got my own website bruce bruceparry.com where you can also see links to various things so yeah it's all around in fact it's your fault i actually went to gabon because i saw your thing when you met uh, this uh, French crazy French guy called Yo. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm friends with him now. I've been down there. Uh, yeah, lovely guy. Yeah. Well, I I I think that he's received a few people as a result of that film. So I'm I'm very happy for him. It's uh, he's doing a really beautiful job, and Iboga is a powerful medicine and. You know, it's difficult with a boga because, of course, it's not it's not as easy, it's not as quick to grow as ayahuasca. So there's problems with the amount of the boga um, and, and the sort of tourism is, is having a slight impact on that. Um, but the um, but still at the same time, it, you know, obviously it's doing its work and it's doing its works where it's needed. And um, as is ayahuasca, I think uh, I was very happy to have had a chance to do that on television and. And I know lots of people have also been inspired to go because although these things are complex and all those things need to be done correctly and there's lots of 
stuff that needs to be figured out beforehand. At the end of the day, I think that we're all going to be much better off as a species if we can reconnect with nature. And these are great tools for helping us do that. Great. Well, it was very nice talking to you. Likewise, my friend. Yeah, thanks so much. To find out more about Bruce and his work, check out bruceperry.com. And I highly recommend you check out Bruce's films. If you're interested in either psychedelics, indigenous cultures, travel, adventure, and even the questions we all have regarding life and existence, his films should all be up your alley. We talked a bit about ordeal experiences like Cambo, and I want to play a short clip from Terence McKenna where he talks about this very topic. We were interested in an aboriginal hallucinogen that would let you talk to little people of some sort. And the chemistry of these things was known, uh, of the ukuhe, gradually became known in the 70s. And it was made from the resin of a certain tree which elaborated not only DMT, which is a clean, fast-acting psychedelic tryptamine, but also a number of other tryptamines. And, you know, after immense expense and physical wear and tear, we, on the upper Yaguasyasu drainage in Peru, we actually contacted people who knew how to make this hallucinogen. And, you know, we thought it was going to hurl open the doorway to the golden realm. And when we finally got to the bioassay of it, which is a, a term which means getting loaded on it. Um, it was really tough to take this stuff. And, you know, your heart felt like it was just going to hammer its way out of your chest. And there were sweats. And, and there was hallucination. But, my God, you were monitoring so many other physiological systems going into crisis that... Uh, uh, you know, it seemed uh, almost ancillary. So then, you know, live through it. The next morning, troop down to the shaman's hut and say, you know, listen, Basilia, we we have to talk. And uh, and then him saying, well, yeah, it takes getting used to. And you know, that's why our shamans don't live very long. And and. So then you, you realize, aha, what we're dealing with here is a culture that has sanctioned this experience and projected a lot of cultural baggage onto it, but that if you're the unsold customer, you say, you know, I, I think once is enough. Thank you for that. A more familiar case that I think is similar, although some people rise up in holy wrath and we get into great arguments about this, but my personal opinion is that Amanita muscaria, do you all know what that is? It's the red mushroom uh, of European folk mythology in German. It's called the Fliegenpilz. Well, a lot of people who never got loaded on it spewed a lot of scholarly argument about how this was a wonderful shamanic intoxicant. But I submit to you, in most cases, it comes closer to being an ordeal. And it, it may be that because of genetic variation, seasonal variation, individual variations in the expression of its genome, 
edaphic factors, meaning the soil that it grows in, uh, the nature of its mycorrhizal relationship, and in other words, we've staked out here about an eight-variable equation relative to Amanita muscaria, that sometimes it's wonderful. But unless you have always been in that area and can draw on the shamanic lore of great tradition about it, I think just going out into the woods and faunching down on the first Amanita muscaria that you come upon is probably a ticket to the emergency room uh, if, you're, if you're not very careful. Uh, in Madagascar, there are no uh, hallucinogens as we would understand it, but there are what are called um, ordeal poisons. This is an entire category in Madagascan Aboriginal shamanism. What's going on here, there, is there are these plants which you take them and you at first assume you're going to die because you feel so bad. And then you feel so bad that you beg to die. And then you don't die. And you recover completely within 10 to 12 hours. And you are so damn glad to be alive that this has all the characteristics of a psychedelic experience. I mean, you come down a kinder, gentler, more attentive, more decent human being. But it's only because you've been hurled into the jaws of death itself and then brought back. That will work, folks. Now to close this episode, we will be listening to a tribe called Red. They're a Canadian electronic music group who blend instrumental hip-hop, reggae, moonbathon and dubstep-influenced dance music with elements of First Nations music, particularly vocal chanting and drumming. And uh, they are uh, natives themselves. So you don't have to yell at me about cultural appropriation because uh, I always go to the source. That's how I play the game. So go to a tribecalledred.com to check out their music. And here's the song Electric Powwow Drum from their self-titled album. Now while you are listening to this track, take some time and follow the podcast on Twitter. It's called Born Alchemist over there. And uh, on Facebook and Instagram, it's called Natural Born Alchemist. You can also become a patron at patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist and support the podcast or just send a donation. Uh, Just head over to naturalbornalchemist.com. All the links are there and bunch of other stuff as well in the next episode we are going to look at the history of alchemy till then freedom is in the mind (laughs) 